0: Welcome back to CRISP Talk. I'm Avery moore and we are so glad you've joined us for this episode. In every episode of CRISP Talk, we focus on a different aspect of security research. That could be specific research being done or research methodologies being used by our members at the Center for Research on Security Practices, or CRISP, at Wilfrid-Laurier University. Our goal is always to tell a story that helps you, our listener, understand the work we do and the really interesting topics and methodologies involved. Because the work of our researchers is so different and far-reaching, we choose a new format for each episode of this podcast that best fits the story we're trying to tell. And today, that's a dynamic panel discussion. For this episode, we were given access to three incredible researchers working with aesthetic approaches to researching security studies. For instance, how can security be visualized through such modalities as photography, film, and contemporary art? And how do these unique ways of seeing help us to think about the relations between space, power, and surveillance? That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. The idea for this episode came from Chris member Sarah Matthews. Sarah's work, The Cultural Life of Drones, explores how conversations about visual culture, technology, privacy, commercialization, and safety can be brought into public dialogue via contemporary art. Here's Sarah.
1: My name is Sarah Matthews. I'm a researcher working in southern Ontario, currently in uh, the Department of Global Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. And my work is interdisciplinary, and most of my projects use research creation as a methodology. And I'm interested in the relations between visual culture and martial politics.
0: For this discussion, we're also joined by Nehruz Abu Her ethnographic manuscript, The Art of Unsettling Visual Politics, Decolonizing the Palestinian Landscape After the Wall, investigates the visual politics of engagement with the landscape in Palestine. The book follows Palestinian artists who work with visual and performance art as sites of political sovereignty and liberation.
2: Okay, So my name is uh, Nayruz Abhatoum. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Concordia University. In Montreal, in the unceded territory of the Genegehaga Nation, uh, in Georgie, also known as Montreal, I'm interested in uh, visual politics, place making, and spatial politics, in most precisely in the context of Israel Palestine. And yeah, that's it.
0: <laughs> Lastly, we are welcoming Brett's story to this discussion. Her second feature-length film, The Prison in 12 Landscapes, explores the hidden world of the modern prison system by examining the impact of mass incarceration outside the prison walls.
3: My name is Brett Story. I'm an assistant professor of image arts at Ryerson University. I'm also a documentary filmmaker and a geographer, and my work tends to concern issues of state violence and social control. So I do work on the carceral state and geographies of the prison industrial complex.
0: Though their projects are quite distinct, what our three guests have in common is their turn to visual representation as a way of thinking about security. And so today we're talking about visualizing security studies and how scholars are working with different aesthetic approaches to research. Well, welcome, everyone to the podcast. We're so glad to have all three of you. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation today, specifically about visualizing security studies and and you know how you're working with different aesthetic approaches to research because I think what you have in common is this turn to visual representation as a way of thinking about security. And uh, to have the three of you in the same room is is really special. So, I'm going to ask you from the beginning, uh, just to describe the projects that we're discussing today. And 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 when you're describing your projects, I'd like you to keep in mind, you know, what aspect of security you've chosen to focus on, and how you're thinking about the status of the visual in your research. So, I thought maybe we would start with Brett. Brett, can you give us a sense of your film, "The Prison in Twelve Landscapes," and and how? how you what you know, the aspects of security and how you're thinking about about the visual in your projects.
3: Yeah, so I'm the director of a film that came out in 2016, a documentary film called The Prison in 12 Landscapes. And that film was a somewhat unusual kind of film um, in regards to representations of the U.S. prison system because it was a film that never shows a prison, either the outside or the inside of a prison. And the aim instead was to um, situate its investigation into contemporary carceral life um, in a sort of set of diverse geographies. Um, So the film is composed of 12 vignettes, each each, each which takes place in a different outside landscape And it invites the audience to find the prison, find the prison system um, in terms of how it works and and its consequences and how, how it lives in that landscape, but also to think critically about the prison, not just as a building that captures and holds life, but as a system and as an infrastructure that's deeply implicated in a variety of other systems and structures that organize modern life. So it's a film that thinks a lot about security, not as much in terms of narratives of personal security, which is the kind of narrative that the, that, um, the criminal justice system tends to rely on, but rather a question of how crisis is stabilized, how the state uses um, technologies of criminalization, incarceration and control to, to stabilize um, and manage
0: uh, the various crises that are endemic to racial capitalism. Absolutely. It's it's a beautiful film. Nehruz, can you briefly talk about your work on the wall and um, the artists and photographers who depict it? I'd love to hear from you about that.
2: Yeah, thank you for the question, uh, Avery. Basically, in this discussion, I'll be talking about the visual politics and the aesthetics of uh, the landscape in Palestine. And more specifically, the militarized landscape in the West Bank after the construction of the wall, and I'll be, for me, I'll be discussing the militarization of the landscape and the, the spatial violence of securitization. And by securitization here, I really mean militarization uh, of the landscape. And my interest, just before I go into uh, uh, interviews and, and work with uh, visual artists and photographers. I want to say that my interest really emerged from the fact that the wall occupy space and landscape uh, and more recently I'm also interested in the wall as a security uh, architecture that also uh, operates in uh, particular uh, ways in relationship to Palestinian time or temporality. But I'll be more focusing uh, in this discussion on the visual aspect and the visual politics. So uh, I, in my uh, research I looked at um, I interviewed a wide range of people who are engaging, who engage with uh, visuals. I, I started by photojournalists and photographers, and then I ended up more fascinated by the work of uh, visual artists and visual conceptual artists, performance uh, artists who who basically, uh, uh, their end result, their work is, is uh, visualized on in relationship to the militarized landscape in the West Bank, and more specifically in relationship to the uh, wall, what's known as separation wall, apartheid wall, uh, and so on. And um, uh, I'm happy to talk about that uh, more.
0: Well, we're looking forward to hearing more about it, Nehruz. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us about your project, The Cultural Life of Drones?
1: Sure. So The Cultural Life of Drones is a project I've been working on now for about three or four years, it recently took the form of an art installation at um, the Conrad Grable Gallery at the University of Waterloo in 2019. And the project asked the question, what does it mean to think of drones as culture? So the term drone, um, you know, it refers to a diverse range of systems, I'm going to call them, from kind of like really small quad, crop, quad rotors that can fit in your hand to um, big solar-powered military aircraft that can fly you know, at 70,000 feet for weeks at a time and have a number of different purposes, both related to security. Um, but for this project, I'm looking at drone systems not just as technologies, but also for the ways they animate particular ways of knowing and being known. And I look at that um, through a sort of micro-study at the local level, everything from the gestures of the workers who produce them in factories to larger questions about algorithmic data applications through which we interpret the patterns by which drones see and apprehend the world. So in this particular project, the art installation I was really exploring the vocabularies associated with drone systems in the Kitchener Waterloo region of Southern Ontario. And I trace how the drone cultures in the region in which I live express these intimate ties between everyday life and the military industrial complex. So in the exhibition, I engaged a social documentary practice as a way of trying to think about these perceptual regimes the underlying drone vision, which I argue that itself is a kind of ethnographic looking. So over a period of six months in 2019, I documented four individuals whose professional work involves drone and drone technologies. And I'm really looking at the ecologies, including like the logistics, the gestures, the vocabularies, the social practices, the soundscapes, which are all elements of how we come to think about security as individuals, communities, and then in relation to the sovereign. Um, So that's really what this project is exploring. Well, thank you all
0: for sharing about your projects. I think it's really great to have that context before we dive into this conversation so we can understand, you know, the different places you're coming from. You know, you connect in different ways in your in your research and your work with technology and architecture. And I think you all have really complex and compelling projects on the go. So I thought maybe we could start by talking about visual research methodology. Each of your projects are inherently dealing with surveillance, power, and space. And so I wondered if you could help us think about the relations be- between those three. How do visual research methodologies help us to to connect? Surveillance power in space, and maybe Sarah. Since you just f- finished talking, I'll, I'll have you continue. I mean, like you talk about bringing life to drones. Can you tell us about about the research methodology and and how that relates to how you want people to see your work?
1: Sure. With this project, I've been really thinking a lot about um, visual ethnography, um, which is a which is a field of of, of um, or it's an approach that that is anchored a lot in um, an- anthropological work. Um, but it's it's also an investigative method that, you know, ethnography involves the study of experience. Um, and typically, for ethnographers, it's seen as a kind of deep learning that attends to the nature of phenomena as it is lived by people. But as, as you're all probably aware, ethnography, you know, also inv- involves the writing up or representation of those experiences in narrative form. And, and as such, it's kind of a troubled practice in of itself, um, you know. Avery, you talked about relations of power and ethnography is itself a discipline steeped in histories of colonialism and imperialism, where practices of looking can repeat these kind of orientalist moves. So for me in this work, I'm not so interested in trying to rescue the innocence of an ethnographic position, but instead work within those ambivalences to explore particular tensions about how the ethnographic gaze is actually embedded in drone cultures. And and I'll give you an example of that. You know, if you could think of drone systems as producing a form of ethnographic looking, what is the point of view of the drone and what kind of stories of experiences does it tell? Uh, This is the idea of drone vision um, that the exhibition I created tries to engage with. And the spatial aspect is really important here because it offers a way to explore what I call the networked infrastructures of drone technologies. And a local example of that, that I found in through the work of my exhibition was the manufacture of um, these sort of sensing systems that they use on um, military drones for, for the most part. But here, right here in Ontario, in Burlington, um, Westcam, which is the Canadian subsidiary of the U.S. arms manufacturer L3 Harris, they have developed and manufactured this electro-optical infrared imaging and targeting sensor system, um, and they they have over like 500 million dollars a year of, of exports for for this sort of technology. And Canada is currently under scrutiny for their compliance with the UN Arms Trade Treaty for their export of Westcam sensors for. To Turkey. So that's just a small example of how like uh, an approach to visual ethnography can be used at the local level to explore some of these networked infrastructures of, of uh, drone technologies that my project is interested to, to think about.
0: Now, to Nehruz, Sarah talks about answering this question through the point of view of the drone. And I think for you, you're grappling with how artists struggle with representation of the border wall and its visual violence. And so I wonder if you could give us a sense, moving from technology to artists, how you're using visual research methodologies to help connect that surveillance power and space idea.
2: Thank you, Avery, for the question. And uh, definitely it's fascinating, Sarah, when you talk about uh, the, the way in which drones um, could be theorized in terms of doing an ethnographic work and it definitely speaks to, to my work as well, because I'm interested in uh, clearly, in, in, uh, as an anthropologist, that we do ethnography. So it's a very good question. Um, uh, my work, or the way I, I grapple with the question of methodology, it's uh, really coming from this uh, uh, I mean, I'm more, I'm more uh, uh, grounded in visual anthropological research, but um, uh, more specifically, anthropology of the visual. And not really producing my own films or or uh, or uh, photography or whatnot uh, um, about about my research. So more kind of anthropology of the visual. Now, what happened is when I uh, I was living. I mean, I have to uh, maybe I have to tell you a story to try to uh, uh, give you kind of a sense uh, why uh, I was very much affected by the wall. Uh, from 2000 to 2004, I was living in Jerusalem. I was doing my undergraduate degree there. Uh, and before that, I was in Nazareth in the north. Um, and uh, in in around 2003, 2004, the wall started to make an appearance. The Israeli military, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a military structure. So the Israeli military built the wall, uh, not as a border, but as a security uh, measure or as a colonial, such colonial uh, uh, kind of violence that is enacted on the space. Um, so... Um, so when I, people were shocked and people were very much affected by this very ugly structure that is now uh, uh, kind of confined them into spaces and uh, hinders their movement and at times dis- displaced some families to, and dispossessed them from their lands and whatnot. So it becomes this kind of militarized uh, structure that also functions uh, uh, to displace and dispossess and, and, and incarcerate. So then I started thinking in in, in this research, and it's really a coming out of my PhD, how, how do I talk about this story without centering the wall as the main element? To it? How do I basically save the Palestinian landscape? How do I recover it outside uh, without centering the wall? And this question, actually, I was thinking about it more and more after the fact. I was more interested in the story that tried to show how the wall is horrible, how the wall is um, uh, visually is uh, uh, cutting people's like, or hindering uh, people from not only moving, but from seeing the landscape from actually relating to their space. I mean, it looks like a prison in some areas like Kolkilia, like Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem, these, these cities in Palestine that are extremely central today, they look like ghettos or prisons. So then I started thinking, how, how do I tell a story of this ugly structure uh, and I found really working with artists and with photographers, uh, mainly Palestinians. I actually started by talking to both Israelis and Palestinians, and I realized there is a whole different epistemological kind of uh, for, uh, ground or, or, or inquiry that drive uh, Palestinians and Israelis uh, uh, who work with the world. But for Palestinians, and then I basically more centered on the Palestinian narrative. And that's what I'm doing at the moment in my book project. Um, uh, I started to talk to them, and I found that there is so much um, discomfort with this, with dealing with this ugly structure that is very photogenic, uh, that is very uh, in your face, and very kind of cle- it, it can be clearly or easily used in an artistic manner, either through graffiti, which is actually the first visual engagement with the wall, was through graffiti, or then through photography and, and art exhibition and performance art and I can speak about it in more details if, if you ask me later about the kind of different work that uh, really caught my eyes uh so methodologically I think um it's it's uh, it's a really tricky question because now I'm more and more thinking that maybe I shouldn't center uh, I shouldn't basically bring back the, the the strength and the violence of the wall into my text but more thinking about the subversion and uh way in which Palestinians subvert, cross, uh, destroy and, and, uh, and uh, uh, dismantle or climb the wall. Um, but if I want to talk also about methodology, I want to add one thing that recently I'm actually more and more interested in sensory experiences uh, of the Palestinian landscape. And the reason I'm saying that, it's because um, I have... Uh, I have collected multiple stories. I have collected stories of people who are affected by the wall and I have collected stories of artists uh, and of activists who are engaging with the wall, mostly Palestinian in this context. And then I learned that what people when people talk when I interview artists, there is a whole vocabulary of sensory experience that i 'm missing uh, in in when I talk when I then kind of represent their work in my writing so i'm more and more now interested in 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 the way in which uh, this sensory register uh, the way we know the world can actually create a very interesting uh, questions and um, I think it's important however to question the way in which knowledge production in academia utilize the visual as basically taken for granted uh, and as the main mode of producing knowledge you know seeing is believing or witnessing and all these kind of centering the visual. So I'm more and more also interested in the sensorial in different ways uh, in which the wall is is felt, uh, expressed, talked about, engaged with, uh, and even the way in which it haunts the landscape uh, or haunts the psyche of the people who live in these areas that were affected by the wall. But definitely at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still at the moment centering the visual while trying to also think about the different sensorial experiences in relationship to the wall. And I think it's been challenging thing to do, but, um, uh, but I'm hoping to be able to, to more kind of uh, go towards that direction. And I'm happy to give examples if uh, in, in the, when we continue the conversation.
0: Yeah, Nehruz, I think it's so interesting, this shift you're talking about to the sensory, and I'd love to to continue on that after. But I do want to connect something you said to the work that Brett does, where this idea of not centering the architecture, right? If you if you see Brett's film, um, you never really see prisons. You're seeing the people who are talking about, you know, their experience or how they were affected by it. And so I wonder, Brett, for you, similar to Nehruz, you know, your choice not to focus on the architecture and the actual building, you know, where people are incarcerated. Can you talk about the decision you made with your film to not kind of center that visual architecture and instead come from the point of view of people around the system and and what that meant for your your visual research methodology? Sure, yeah. I
3: mean, this discussion around using the visual as a means of knowledge production, I think is really interesting. I'm I'm trained as a geographer, but I have a practice as a filmmaker. And I think that geography and, and filmmaking actually have a lot in common. And one of the things that they have in common is an investment in the question of seeing, the question of the visual, and the, the question of how our everyday landscapes, the in, the spaces that we inhabit and move through are in various ways mystified such that we don't necessarily see how power is organized to to produce the the world as it appears to us, let alone how it might be otherwise. So for me, the, the starting point in thinking about this project that became the film The Prison in Twelve Landscapes um, one of the starting points was a very sort of basic observation, which is that prisons themselves are spaces of disappearance. Um, this is by design and by definition, right? They, they disappear or they attempt to disappear, the people inside them. They're, they're deliberately organized as spaces that take punishment out of the public realm and put it, you know, privatize it and not in a economic sense, but privatize it in the sense of like being something that the public no longer sees happen. The the state is inflicting punishment on uh, people, but we don't see it in the same way that we would have during the era of um, public displays of of bodily punishment. So prisons disappear or attempt to disappear the people inside them. They hide people behind these high walls, these security fences, armed guards, um, et cetera, And they themselves are increasingly disappeared from the dense spaces where many of us live and and move around. So prisons today are built far away from urban areas, in remote hinterlands, far away, out of sight. They're hard to get to. I mean, I've had experiences trying to to Google map a a penitentiary that I'm trying to get to and and realizing that it's in some way redacted. Um, They're also really, interestingly, um, the architecture, you know, there, there's a sort of history of prisons having a very distinct architecture, They're gargoyles and towers and so on. So they had a real distinct look and that was part of their function. And today's prisons, you know, are indistinguishable from, from warehouses, um, from logistics compounds. And I think that that's another form of, of disguise and disappearance. Um, but also prisons are of course, disappeared, um, ideologically, right? They're disappeared behind common ideas, exploited anxieties, and persistent mythologies. And I think the most pervasive of these mythologies is the the fantasy that, and I'll call it a fantasy deliberately, that prisons keep us, and I put us in, in scare quotes, safe by holding those who supposedly pose us danger uh, apart and far away. And I mean, I'm interested in this as a person interested in how spaces are produced uh, and so as a geographer, but I'm interested in this as a filmmaker who works primarily in, in, in the language and the vernacular of the image, right? So if prisons are deliberately and by design spaces of disappearance, then what does it mean to try and see the prison? And in turn, what does that supposed seeing then do? So... The, the usual way of, you know, trying to counter this disappearance, if you're a filmmaker, is to try and get inside. Um, and that's why we see so many documentaries, um, you know, even even documentaries that are social justice oriented, or that have progressive politics, that, um, that see as their mission, the, um, the work of, of bringing the camera inside and then documenting, you know, a sort of human story of of, um, of what, what's happening to, to someone um, on the inside of a cell. And I'm, I'm sort of interested in the limits of that seeing, you know, there's a way in which prisons, especially in the era of mass incarceration are both totally and increasingly disguised and hard to get access to, but at the same time, totally ubiquitous, which is why as soon as you say the word prison, an image immediately comes to mind, even if you yourself have not, had no direct exposure Um, And so I wanted to sort of, you know, I wanted to try and think about this problem and this trap of seeing, because I do think it's a trap, um, the way in which you assume that a particular image does a work. Um, In this case, the image of the inside of a cell, you assume that it's going to do some sort of work, you know, humanizing people inside or revealing something about the system and suggest that maybe the task is to try to situate the gaze differently. Um, and that in situating the gaze, situating the image, situating the cameras, um, observations everywhere, but at the actual penitentiary that we might actually think of the questions posed by the crisis of incarceration differently. Um, and for me that meant, you know, moving away from the penitentiary as a building precisely so that we can think about the prison as um, a set of, of social relations, not as the, you know, as a site of criminal justice, not even as, you know, the end, the end point of a criminal justice system, but, but rather as this social infrastructure um, that has become central to how the modern capitalist state manages all sorts of Crises And those crises include the crises of surplus labor. They include the crises of deindustrialization. So one of the sites in my film is um, a community in eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian coal fields known for 100 years of intense um, coal mining, where over the past 20 years we've seen We've seen uh, a building spree of penitentiaries being built right on top of closed down coal mines. So literally the, the landscape of, of industrial coal production is being swapped out for the contemporary landscape of uh, mass incarceration. And in these places, in these small towns that are devastated by poverty, by you know decades of hemorrhaging coal jobs... Unemployed coal miners are are desperately excited and desperately hoping to get um, employed as prison guards. That's the sort of promise of building all these prisons on top of coal mines. So, so the the point of the point of that scene is to use the the suggestion that we should look away from the penitentiary, see the prison and how it exists in this in this outside landscape. Precisely, so we can think differently about what its functions are. Um, it is no longer again a kind of something indexed to crime uh, or conviction or court proceedings but rather to the labor market you know the prison functions in this landscape as a uh, an employment strategy so there's a sort of direct relationship between the seeing seeing and thinking and a sort of critical reappraisal of the role of this institution in contemporary life at least that's the that's the attempt and that's the thinking behind using images as their own form of of research and and knowledge production,
0: yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting. You know what you were saying about altering the gaze, uh, and I think that's something that all three of you have in common. This this effort to alter the gaze and, and look at it from a different side, and and tell the story in a way that doesn't you know center the thing that you don't quite want to center. From there, Sarah, I wonder if you could give me a sense of. I think you do this similarly with drones, is this altering of the gaze that Brett talks about, and I do wonder, you know, when we're talking about the structures of security and how they can be visualized, can you give me a sense of what the impact in your view of visual research methodologies beyond that sort of, you know, the venues of publishing and academia can be when when you look at the visual uh, and when you offer an audience uh, something visual to ponder and and to, like Brett said, you know, alter the gaze of the way they're looking at a specific issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just, my my brain is going off in so many different directions right now, listening to Brett and Nehruz talk about their work. There's a lot of synergy between, as you said, Avery, the ways in which we're thinking about the gaze and practices of security and our research methodologies and uh, different ways of undoing, right? I guess I share with, with both um, Brett and Nehruz an and interest in in thinking about histories of looking and and suggesting of course that they're not neutral. And indeed with photography which is the practice that I use, the visual practice that I relied on in my um art installation, I would say like the very development of the ca- of camera technology is tied to surveillance and its military applications. Um so drone technologies they have enabled remote forms of sensing. And what I mean by that is, you know, cameras gather light as data that can then be reproduced in a photographic image that others see. Um, and, and in doing so, these forms of sensing, they kind of extend the range and scope of visual capture And therefore, even the range of the human field of perception. And this did come up in, I'll get to the second part of what you you asked me, which was, you know, what this looks like when you're engaging people in conversation outside of academia. So I think with my project, arguably, I'm saying that drone technologies have changed our capacity for vision, what or who it becomes possible to see when and why. And so with the documentary project, I'm working with the concept of the drone gaze as a way to really interrogate how vision is both historically situated and techno-culturally mediated. For example, how do these visioning regimes, such as the sensor that I mentioned earlier, how do they alter the ways in which we learn to see? Take, for example, the Gorgon Stair video capture technology, which a lot of people are familiar with. It was developed um, by DARPA for the United States military about a decade ago now, I think. And it has the visual range to be able to capture up to 50 square kilometers of data resulting in detailed real-time video capture of uh, like an entire city, right? So these kinds of innovations in in visual capture require other new technologies to aid in the management interpretation of them. And there you see like the United States uh, under Trump coming up with the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team, which is like a, a current example but, you know, these kind of developments in visual capture techniques have long been associated with innovations in industrial technologies, and in particular with military vision. So how technologies of seeing might magnify and expand the space of the battlefield. So I'm really concerned with those kinds of histories and their contemporary applications and the troubled history of seeing With respect to my choices of representational practice for the artistic work, I mean, Brett mentioned this when she was talking about uh, the visual image and its capacity to represent something. Um, And I'm also interested in destabilizing that notion. So in terms of the impact this has beyond traditional venues of publishing and academia, because I did this art installation and I had members of the general public come through, as well as lots of students in different kinds of classes, um, you know, when I gave tours of the exhibition, I was really, it was a way to engage people in these kinds of conversations from a more embodied positionality, working from their own experiences of visual culture, their own interpretations of the installation itself which I would say didn't have a very obvious narrative structure. So really forced people to think about their own implication in, in um, the ways in which they have learned to see and to be able to ask themselves these questions about how they, how they themselves use visual methodologies in coming to know the spaces of their own everyday worlds. So I really do think it had a different kind of impact than had, I I mean, I am writing about this for a chapter in a book on creative approaches to military studies. But I do think the, you know, the work with visual methodologies allowed a different kind of engagement that is more in line with the kind of work I'd like to produce as a public intellectual or a researcher who's interested in kind of upending the ways in which. in which the visual continues to support like systems of racial capitalism and and white supremacy.
0: Yeah, Sarah, there's there's a lot there to unpack. And I think, I think where I want to go next is perhaps I'll I'll send this question to Nehruz, but I I think in all of your cases it's obvious that you're influenced in some way by decolonial and feminist frameworks in the projects that we're talking about today. And so Nehruz, I wonder if you can start off, can you talk specifically about what has influenced you and and how those influences have shaped the the projects about the wall that you're working on with artists?
2: Yeah, thank you, Avery, for the question. Um, I think really uh, what, what most influenced me is is talking to people who were affected by the wall or talking to artists and really trying to trace the kind of language and imagery and, and description that they have about their landscape. So this is why I, I was... Really, more interested in the visual initially, and I'm still very much centering the visual. So, the way in which the, the, the space is being imagined and talked about, even in terms of uh, poetry or in terms of uh, actually visual art and, uh, and, and photography and whatnot. Uh, so, this is kind of one of the main uh, uh, interests, but I'm also, or, or influence uh, or inspiration, but also really at the beginning of the construction of the wall. We heard stories about the wall being constructed in other uh, cities and villages in the West Bank. So the wall was kind of living also as a rumor uh, until it reached one location or another. So pe- conversation with people, this everyday, everydayness of, of, of this violence that haunts the space then become really a, an inspirational or a fruitful ground to, to think about this larger military uh, settler-colonial structure uh but also in terms of theoretical uh, influence uh, i'm really uh influenced by uh, initially i was really interested in 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 writings like Eyal Weizmann, uh, also gil hochberg um uh Nicholas Mirzuev, those academics uh, uh academic writing that were facing uh the state or talking about violence or critiquing violence from uh, centering the state and and uh, uh, the security apparatus or the military military uh, apparatus in their analysis kind of to to expose them to reveal them uh, and i think it's a very useful approach however i 'm also really influenced by more decolonial and indigenous uh, critical indigenous and critical race studies i mean especially when we look at critical race studies and, and uh, black studies you have a whole uh, 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 very like a, like a history of of, of uh, Writing about the uh, incarceration, displacement, dispossession, and so on, uh, and how kind of security have, has a race, uh, racializing aspect to it, but also indigenous and decolonial studies uh, are becoming more and more influential in my work, and it's translated through me center, centering the artist and their work, uh, centering the way in which the artists grapple with the question of of, of the wall. Uh, uh, in their spaces and how they try to kind of subvert the spectacle of violence. Uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in Audra uh, uh, Simpson's work uh, on refusal and recognition. And actually it's really coming uh, uh, empirically from my conversation with the artists, especially those who said, I refuse engaging with the wall. I want to present the landscape without the wall or talk about the effect of this violence as it haunts the Palestinian landscape but without necessarily centering the wall. And some of them actually use the Arabic word, which means refusal or rejection. So I found it interesting that there is this different conversation about political refusal and visual refusal in this case. But I also, uh, talking to other uh, Palestinian artists, I found this conundrum uh, of of how to, to deal with this visual Architectural structure in the landscape, this this her, her wall on the landscape. How to deal with it in a way that uh, doesn't reproduce its violence? So, and maybe try to think about the using the visual as as a realm of liberation or claiming some sort of visual sovereignty. These are still kind of questions that I'm trying to to to, to uh, more empirically. I'm in, I'm influenced. Uh, 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 by the people who talk to me, by the artists, I'm I'm influenced by their uh, vocabulary or their way in which they conceptualize uh, their work through sovereignty and refusal and liberation. And in fact, I would say artists, in this case that I spoke with, are actually, their, their words are theory. They're producing theory through their work and through their words without necessarily being sitting in the academy. Uh, I'm also very much influenced by Palestinian writers like Nadir Shalhoub Khuburgian, like Rima Hamame, Helga Tawil Souri, uh, who theorize the, the space and the, and the occupied space uh, in the context of, of the West Bank more specifically, uh, through looking at checkpoints at all these military structures that kind of uh, uh, control dominates people's life, but also how people, especially uh, women, so uh, uh, kind of uh, contested uh, through their body, so how their body become uh, a site of uh, of resistance and uh, uh, I mean also if I look, if I want to talk about indigenous methodologies and uh, I think uh, Macarena Gomez-Barris' uh, recent book The Extractive Zone talks about submerged perspective uh, and I'm also interested in the submerged and subterranean perspective in the way in which Palestinians literally dig tunnels under the to to be able to escape, uh, to to cross the wall. Or in the context of Gaza, I'm collaborating with a friend of mine trying to think about the Gaza tunnels as claims to opacity and how they're able to, uh, different uh, groups in Gaza, some militarized, some non-militarized, are able actually to escape the the extremely militarized uh, uh, location of the Gaza Strip through their knowledge their their inherited knowledge, through generation and generation of the land, so they know when to dig a tunnel and when not to dig when the, when the, the land under uh, uh, I mean when the land is, is, uh, is wet enough or is dry enough to be able to produce the tunnels in in Gaza and finally, kind of looking at the way in which this violence seeps into the everyday I'm also really influenced by Veena Das's work on violence and the.
0: Nayruz, I think something you said almost not reminded me of Brett's work, but but I thought it was a good connection. This idea that, you know, you're grappling in your work with that security has a racialized aspect and that inherently connects to this idea of incarceration. So I wonder, Brett, could you similarly on that question... Talk a little bit about how uh, you're influenced by decolonial and feminist frameworks and and whether there's a potential there for that kind of approach to decolonize thinking or practice or, or both uh, in the work that you're doing. I'm very
3: influenced by and and. like I'm a student of, but also a participant of a political project known as Prison Abolition. And I I think Prison Abolition is itself deeply feminist and um, in concert with decolonial theory and practice. And it's it's really shaped how I think of my work um, politically, but also methodologically, because part of what prison abolitionists, you know, people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Miriam Kaba, Angela Davis, many others who see themselves as um, not just radical activists um, and and practitioners of liberation organizing, but also as theorists, people who understand that analysis is also necessary, uh, a necessary tool to liberation and to, and to the, the broader project of, of getting free. Um, you know, what they repeat over and over again is something that becomes a kind of organizing premise to my work in prison and 12 landscapes, which is that, you know, the prison is a set of relations. And so what does that mean? What does that mean to, to give, to visualize that, right? It's a bit of a heady concept, but, um, it's, it's dialectical in orientation. It suggests that we, we can't think of prisons as a static system outside of the, um, the organizing political economy in which they emerged as a strategy and tactic of state um, punishment and control and in which they're constantly adapting and changing. So one of the questions Ruth Wilson Gilmore asks is, you know, not just why do we see prisons as a emerge as a modern form of preferred state punishment, you know, 200 years ago, but also what is its changing relationship to to racial control in particular, to anti-Black state repression in particular? And then at what moments of contingency do we see the state lean even harder on policing and prisons as a form of crisis management? And so thinking about mass incarceration, not as an aberration, nor as a, you know, um, a reflection of a changing popular mood, but rather as again something where we can track the numbers and we can track the money. Right, so mass incarceration, which is the catch-all term we use to describe a sharp spike in incarceration rates, um, started in the United States in the early '70s, which is also where it started in other countries like like Canada, um, especially countries, in particular countries that saw widening gaps between the rich and the poor and increasing reliance on what we call neoliberal policies. Um, So those include experimentations in state retreat from its welfare provisions, increased uh, financialization of all spheres of, of economic life and growth, and a variety of, of, of forms of responsibilization, and so on. So, I mean, abolition is, again, it's a, it's a theory and a project and a movement that's deeply rooted in the imperative is essentially rooted in the imperative of enabling mass freedom, right? It's a struggle. It's a liberation struggle. And in that way, it's, you know, I'd say feminist theory is also liberation struggle and decolonial theory is also liberation struggle. I feel like it's really important to think about the work we do as researchers and as artists as being accountable to projects. So one of the things people always ask me is like, you know, you're an activist, you're a prison abolitionist. Why don't your films look like typical activist films? Like they're not very messagey. They are slightly opaque. They take an oblique approach. Like it doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose. And, and I, I take my cue again from these, these radical theorizations of um, the evolution of contemporary racial capitalism, which remind us that we need to think about, We need to be historical and material in our thinking. You know, what confluence of factors produces a particular set of outcomes? What are the power struggles that produce a particular landscape? How could things be otherwise? I mean, a liberation struggle is nothing if not the reminder uh, that things can be, could have been and can be other than what they are, that We don't have to have 2.2 million people in the United States in prison. We don't have to have 33% of incarcerated women in Canada are indigenous women, despite them being only 3% of the broader population. So once we remind ourselves that that's not how we have, how it had to be or how it has to be, then the, the political imperative is to figure out the points of contingency and therefore the points of vulnerability that make action possible and to me as a, as a, not just a visual researcher, but as an artist, as well as a scholar, I think about um, how art intervenes in the place of the imagination in order for it to work, it needs to um, invite someone to meet it. So I try and produce images and films that don't just tell you what to think, that don't just offer an analysis, but offer you a way into developing your own analysis um, and that give you space to think. And to ask questions in order to produce, not just not even knowledge exactly, but consciousness. And I think that that is something that I also get and am inspired by in terms of the the work of of decolonial feminist and abolitionist scholars. The, the interest in and belief in political consciousness and its role in political struggle.
0: Thanks, Brett. I actually I just wrote down art intervenes in imagination. I really love that. I wonder over to Sarah. You know, just to finish off, I, I would love to to hear your answer to this question about about how those you know decolonial and feminist frameworks influence influence the the projects that you're working on with drones and and the uh, the way you're presenting it visually.
1: Well, I think like my colleagues, um, you know, I'm also deeply influenced by the work of uh, feminist critical cultural theorists and. How their work interrogates experience in relation to histories of transatlantic and plantation slavery, uh, settler colonialism, carceral geographies and and racial capitalism. But I do want to point out that, you know, with, with drone research in the last 10 years, there's been kind of an academic industry that has really expanded. And there's been some excellent critiques. In fact, a recent article in Jadalia, um, an online um, magazine, there's an article by Dalitzai and Gumkar who suggests that um, it's predominantly white settler researchers in the global north who have kind of capitalized on this movement, producing ethnographies, monographs, workshops, symposia, etc., that so-called like study the effects of drone warfare on communities without ever engaging those individuals as intellectual interlocutors in their work. Um, So I was really interested in Nehruz's suggestion that it was her working with, you know, artists that enabled her to think about different ways of conceptualizing the violence of the wall. And, I mean, I think for me... The, the point where anti-colonial and feminist scholarship orients my way of thinking about my work is around this the tradition of intellectual or pr- practical activism, right? That can interrogate um, how researchers themselves are embedded in racial capitalism and from my position as a white settler scholar in in white supremacy. Um, And so that's one of the ways in which one of the reasons I insist on doing this work, local ethnography work, working from within one's own community as a way of thinking about network infrastructures of drone cultures and their effects and the relationship to the military industrial complex, which is a supporting buttress of, of racial capitalism. So, I mean, some of the scholars that I draw on are ones that have been already mentioned by my colleagues like uh, Jill Hochberg and Arie- Ariella Zule's way of thinking about, um, the political contract of images. And also, uh, scholars, um, like Catherine McKittrick and Simone Brown who, who've taken a look at the racial geographies of, um, practices of, of surveillance. And then, um, other critical geographers like Deb Crowan, Deb Cowan, um, And Ruth Wilson Gilmore and and their work on, on logistics and networked infrastructures, which I think are really important to drilling down into the ways in which, you know, we can think about the implications of racial capitalism in the various avenues that we're that we're researching each of us in our approaches to visual visualizing security studies. So I'll just leave it there.
0: Wonderful. Well, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you, Sarah, Nehruz and Brett, for, for being here and for having this really interesting conversation that I know our audience is really going to appreciate. So to have you all in the same room was an absolute pleasure. And and I thank you all for being here and, and for sharing your work with us.
2: I, I also want to thank Anna, Sarah and Avery for making this meeting happen. happen. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, everyone, for such a, a rigorous and fascinating conversation. I enjoyed being part of it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Chris Talk. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to our wonderful panelists today. Brett Story is an assistant professor of image arts at Ryerson University. She is also a documentary filmmaker and geographer. A link for more information on her film, The Prison in 12 Landscapes, is in the show notes of this episode. Nehru Abu is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Concordia University. A link for more information about her manuscript, The Art of Unsettling Visual Politics, Decolonizing the Palestinian Landscape After the Wall, is included in the show notes as well. And Sarah Matthews is an associate professor in the Department of Global Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. There's a link to more information about her work, The Cultural Life of Drones, in the show notes. A great big thank you also this episode to Anna Vishan, who did some incredible work to help us prepare for this podcast. You can always find more information about our guests and their research in the show notes of all of our episodes. We are so glad you joined us, and we cannot wait to uncover more of our research on our next episode. This is Crisp Talk, and I'm Avery moore